think we could just sail home after that one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that it gives, the joy that it brings. We thank you, Lord, for your promises that are new every morning. Be with us, Lord, as we come to your word now. Help our hearts to, to hear well. Help me to speak in a way that brings you glory and honor. We express our neediness and dependence upon you for all these things. Amen. <clears throat> Carlos Lozada of the Washington Post, he wrote an article a little while back entitled, Everyone Wants to Fix the World, Here's How. He writes, the cover of Wired Magazine's December issue inspires me, but it also stresses me out. Guest editor Bill Gates wants you to fix the world. It proclaims and then lists three ambitions. <clears throat> Big ideas, smart innovation, bright future. And next gives three commands. End poverty, save lives, cure disease. He goes on to say, I read magazines and books to learn how other people are making the world a better place. Now it's up to me. I appreciate the vote of confidence, but that's a lot of pressure, especially because it's no longer just about volunteering on weekends or giving to charity. Can't end poverty and cure disease in your spare time. No, unless you're constantly innovating, disrupting, problem solving, life hacking, starting up and spinning off, you're missing out. Everyone knows that our world has some serious problems. And recent events in our country serve only to highlight that reality. And so people in our country, people all over the planet, really are working on solutions and cures and fixes to these problems. But the fix is already in. And Christians know this. That's our message. The world has already been fixed, and it's being fixed. Because in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ, to reconcile to himself, to fix all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, we need to know our message. We need to cling to that message. We need to know and be convinced in our heart of hearts that the world has already been fixed, and the fix is Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's our hope. That is reality. Christ. 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 That's it. So we're going to finish this morning taking a look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Uh, we previously noted how this text can essentially be broken down into two main points or parts. Christ's preeminence over creation, the first half, and then Christ's preeminence over redemption or new creation. We've also noted how this poem or this song is to be meditated on. One man said that anyone who writes like this intends the reader to stop and listen, to stop and meditate, right? To turn these words over and over again in our minds. These words are intended to be chewed on, to be sucked on like a, a good piece of hardtack candy. And that's what we have tried to do as we've studied this together. Last fall, a long time ago, many months ago, we finished studying the first section 
Christ's preeminence over creation. We learn that we're to live to please Christ with our lives because he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, the creator of all things, the, the telos of all things, the, the point, the aim, the goal of all creation. He's the one who existed before all things and he is the one who sustains all things. Christ couldn't be any higher. He is preeminent over creation. Today we're going to move on and, and finish this text and look at the second half of this wonderful passage and see how we are to live to please Christ with our lives because he is preeminent in redemption. And for those who love Jesus Christ, this text is just almost more than we can handle, isn't it? The king of creation, this supreme one, the one who, who created all things, the one for whom all things exist, this very person just so happens to be our savior. My Lord, your Lord, our Redeemer is glorious. So let's turn to our text now and see how Christ is preeminent in redemption or new creation. And first look at how we're to live to please Christ with our lives because he is the head of the church. And I'm saying that we're to live to please Christ with our lives based on what Paul prays for the Colossian believers in 9 through 14, just the previous passage. He prays essentially that. He prays for what they need, not what they want, but what they need. And what they need is to live lives pleasing to Christ. And I think that this text, 15 through 20, is the why, the reason why he is that worthy. So that's where I'm getting this from. As verse 18 says of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is not only preeminent over all creation, visible and invisible, but he's also preeminent over the new creation. The word church here is a word frequently used in Scripture simply to describe a gathering of people. Here the meaning is clear. The context helps us. This is the gathering of God's new covenant people, followers of Jesus Christ. And that term body here is being used differently than maybe perhaps where it's typically used in the rest of the New Testament because it's not here talking about the local body of believers. In the local body of believers, all the members of the body, the hand, the eye, the foot, the head, are all of equal importance. And they're all necessary equally for the body to function properly. Here, though, the expression is universal. And Christ is the head of this body. That is, he is the leader of the body. He is the one who rules over the church. The Pope is not the head of the church, nor is some high and mighty angel, which perhaps was being pushed upon the Colossian believers. Only Jesus Christ. He is the head of all the redeemed. He is the king of all those who have been transferred into his kingdom. And this headship, this rule, I think teaches us at least three things about Christ that are encouraging for us to, to ponder. First, we learn that he is intimately associated with his people. So there exists between King Jesus and his people this intimate, this organic relationship that's described here as his body. Second, because of this, God's people are also dependent upon their head for life and power. The body, apart from the head, ceased to exist. Christ is the head, then, in the sense that he is its source of life. Jesus said this differently in John 15, 5, same essence. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the head of the body. He is its source of life. He is where the body draws its power, its energy. Third, I think most importantly in context, Christ's headship over the church signifies his control over his people. His people, the redeemed, submit to him. And no other. He alone is head. Christ is preeminent in creation. He's also preeminent in the new creation. No realm, no realm exists where Christ does not reign as supreme. Now and for all of eternity. That reality isn't going to change. All over this planet, God's true people in Christ gather in local expressions of this universal reality in house churches, underground churches, prison churches, big churches. Christ is Lord of all of them. And so all of creation, visible and invisible, is to Christ. But now we see that even the new creation, the redeemed, and all future realities contained in that phrase are to Christ or for Christ. Creation and new creation, the new heavens and new earth, redemption, all have the same goal. They all exist for the same reason, Christ. These realities exist for Christ. He is their purpose. He is their aim. He is their end. And so practically speaking, I think that this is so informative for us. Local churches are to be a local expression of this universal reality. Jesus Christ is head of the church. Therefore, because of this truth, the focus of the church is not on meeting the needs of the community. It's not even on meeting the needs of its own people. The focus of the church is Christ and his lordship. We gather together to worship him because he is preeminent. He is the head of the church. He is its source of life and power and strength. Apart from him, we can do nothing. People in America, people in our world are severely confused at this one point. They don't know who the leader of the church is. They think it's the pastor. Or they think it's the people through some form of democratic process. And in their mind, they believe that the church exists to meet their needs, to make much of them. And so when they stumble upon a true church that's seeking to make much of Jesus Christ and to worship him and exalt him, a church where Christ is the head, then they're upset because the church isn't doing what they expect, what they have come to expect from their experience in society. It's not making much of them, and so in their mind, in their thinking, it's a bad church. But the church is not a social club. It's not a self-help center. It doesn't exist as a showcase for Louisville's Got Talent. It's a place where Christ rules supreme because he is the head of the body, the church. The church is also not some sort of conservative political arm that, that is necessary in order to steer and to fuel the conservative agenda and so save society. The Republican Party is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, and so the church answers to him. The church is concerned about pleasing him. The church has life only as it is connected to him. You see, some Jews in the first century 
were tempting the Colossian church to please them. It seems they were trying to get these Colossian believers into their fold. Hey, you guys, you know, it's great that you have found the one true and living God, the one God. Come and join us. We would love to welcome you. We would love for you to join us. Just adopt our food laws, obey our Sabbaths, take on circumcision, you'll be good to go. Do all that. You truly will be spiritual. You'll be righteous, finally. That'll satisfy us. You can have your Christ. If you want to believe that he is a long way to Messiah, go for it. We're not going to mess with that. But these things are essential if you are going to be righteous, if you're going to be a real Christian. There's a lot of concern today about the survival of the church in America. Really, there's been a lot of talk about this since I started paying attention, going back to maybe even the 80s. People are concerned about the survival of the church. But if we, stop about, if we stop and think about that statement in light of the glory of this text, that's actually insane. It's completely irrational. Jesus Christ, this preeminent one, the one who made all things and for whom all things exist, is the leader of the church. And he doesn't need anyone to help his body, the church, survive. Our responsibility is not the survival of the church but faithfulness to our head. Jesus Christ is preeminent. We can't get confused here. We don't need to please denominational leaders, or parachurch agencies, or conservative political pundits, or Hollywood, or the media, or Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever else is out there. Temptations to please people are always going to come. That is not going to end. There's always going to be people who are going to try to influence the church, their direction for one reason or another, but Jesus Christ is our head. We need to please Christ. We've seen this temptation in our country over and over and over again. This is not something new. For example, last year, those with influence in our country were demanding that the church do these certain things regarding sexual abuse. And sexual abuse is extremely wicked. It's an absolute abomination, so hear me say that. But the church needs to be really careful here not to take action simply to please society, to please those who are of importance and who are calling for heads to roll. They should take action solely to please their head, Jesus Christ. In fact, they should have already dealt openly and honestly with sexual abuse within the church a long time ago if they were truly seeking to please Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. The church answers to him. Live to please Christ with your life because he is the head of the church. And not only this, but we should also live to please Christ with our lives because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18 continues and adds, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the beginning. He is the first to be raised from the dead as part of new creation. But the beginning here speaks more to his rank. It's highlighting the fact that he is the highest in rank of this group of people who will be raised from the dead. And so even here, 
Jesus takes first place. And he's going to be the highest ranking, not only in all creation now, but for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever. In our text, there's a clear purpose clause here. He is the firstborn from the dead in and through his resurrection for a reason, for a very clear purpose, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Lazarus rose from the dead before Jesus rose from the dead, chronologically speaking, and he died again. His resurrection wasn't to newness of life. Jesus' resurrection is that of the firstborn of this entire new creation to come. He is the firstfruits, as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 proclaims. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus conquered death. And in his resurrection, we see proof that he also conquered sin. Remember Romans 6.23, that verse we, we memorized in Sunday school, some of us? The wages of sin is death. What that is saying is that what our sin earns is death. Sin and death, ever since Genesis 3, have always gone together. They're inseparable in this life. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, his resurrection signaled the defeat of sin once and for all. So as Paul said in Acts 26, 23, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And this message of light we see is our wonderful hope and our wonderful future in Jesus Christ. So even when it comes to sin and death and redemption, Jesus Christ is preeminent. He rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death, and so is the firstborn of many brothers, as Romans 8, 29 explains. Jesus first, then the rest. He is the beginning. He's the highest ranking then of all believers who arise from the dead. He is the founder of this new and perfect humanity, as some have said. And he is going to be that forever. And the new heavens and the new earth, when we're going to enjoy ourselves new bodies, even there in that glorious realm, Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is supreme over the entire old creation and the new. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. We often think about the resurrection from a very self-centered perspective. Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that I might embrace his person and work so that I might be forgiven my sins so that I too might rise from the dead in the resurrection of the saints. And everything I just said is true, but the emphasis is off. The focus is misplaced. This text before us declares that first and foremost, Jesus Christ rose from the dead in order that he might be preeminent. Again, Jesus Christ is the center of all things. Our world, past, present, and future, is and always will be a Christocentric world. That is never going to change. The sooner we figure that out, the sooner everyone figures that out and acts accordingly, the greater is going to be our joy. The sooner our world figures that out, the greater is going to be their joy. Philippians 2.8 explains that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Isn't that amazing? This preeminent one humbled himself. Therefore, because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in its context, in Philippians 2, the point of mentioning all of Christ's glory there was to encourage humility for the greater purpose of unity within the church of which Christ is the head. And so if you have a good memory, a very good memory, several months ago, maybe six months ago, last time we talked, if you remember, we talked at length about how this text is a pride killer and how it encourages humility. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold Christ, we conform to his image by one degree of glory to another. So as we look to Christ and as we see his glory, If we are seeing it properly, it's going to result in some measure of humility. Christ alone is preeminent. The question the disciples were arguing about in Matthew 20 has been decisively answered. You know, the question about who is the greatest? Jesus is the greatest. You're not the greatest. I'm not going to be the greatest. I'm never going to be the greatest. Jesus is the greatest, and he's going to be that forever and ever and ever. And in light of what we've seen so far this morning, though, we can see that Christ's preeminence should result in a humility that is specifically manifested in the body of Christ, the church. The church, then, should be the humblest and the most harmonious place on the planet. God help us. Because of that, we need to work at governing our corporate familial affairs under the headship of Jesus Christ. We need to always strive to make much of Christ and his work on the cross. We cannot allow any other person or any other philosophy to take center stage. We need to be careful that political agendas, even good ones like abolishing abortion, don't take center stage. We need to be careful that we as a church don't focus on the family as great as it is to have good families because our families are not to be the central focus of the church. Identity politics and so on are also not the focus of the church. Only Christ. Only Christ. His resurrection proved his victory over sin and death. It secured our salvation. But even beyond that, it placed him as the head of this new humanity. He is founder and king of all of God's people, and it's going to be this way for all of eternity. And I I hope that thought puts a smile on your face. It puts one on my face. Jesus Christ is going to be my, is going to be your ruler, your leader, your king for all eternity. Therefore, Because Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Live your life to please him. Next, we should live to please Christ with our lives because he is the one in whom God's fullness dwells. Verse 19 explains, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you look ahead at at chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 9, Paul puts it this way, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Here we come to one big 
huge exclamation point as to the why of Christ's preeminence. Why is Jesus such a big deal? Why should the Colossian believers be only concerned about, about pleasing Jesus Christ? And why is their joy wrapped up in that venture? Why should we seek to please him? Why is he the beginning? Why must he have first place in everything? Well, because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the Greek text, it just says, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. God's the implied subject. It's God's fullness, though, that we're talking about here. We gather that from context, but we also gather that from the fact that in the Old Testament, God and his fullness are also, are also are frequently connected. They go together. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament frequently to describe the glory of God filling the tabernacle. It's really all over the Old Testament. Let me just give you one example. Exodus 40, verse 34, we read after the construction of the tabernacle in Moses' day, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Which I think is more to the point in our text. You see, it's not just that God's glory has come to fill Jesus. Like the Holy Spirit sometimes in the Old Testament filled certain saints for a certain task. But beyond that, it's that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, God was pleased to dwell in a special way in the tabernacle and the temple. But now that special fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. Or as one writer puts it, Jesus is the place in whom God in all of his fullness was pleased to take up his residence. This highlights the perfection of Christ, but it's also highlighting the deity of Christ. God in all of his fullness, all of his completeness, which is immeasurable, was pleased, that is, he chose, I think it's helpful for us to think election here, to take up permanent residence in Christ. The temple and the tabernacle are obsolete. Jesus has replaced their purpose. This is one of the reasons why I personally believe that the temple described at the end of the book of Ezekiel is not talking about a literal temple. And really, as I was studying this passage, I haven't run it by Jim, so I'm going to like nail this into the wall just a little bit. I think it's speaking of Christ based on this text. A picture of perfection, a future hope for God's people. How could it not be? Jesus told the Jews that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, speaking of his body. If a person wants to meet with God, to be intimate with God, to enjoy God's special presence, then they must now come to Christ. Before, they would go to the temple and they would worship God there. They would offer their sacrifices. They would commune with God there. But now they come to Christ. First Colossians 2.9 says again, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This highlights Christ's role as mediator, as priest between God and man. But as I mentioned, it also highlights his deity. Colossians 2.9 makes that explicit, but it's here as well. God in all of his fullness chose to take up permanent residence in Jesus Christ. And I believe any first century Jew would understand Paul's point loud and clear and would accuse him of blasphemy if they heard that. The temple contained the Holy of Holies, but now... A man contains the Holy of Holies? 
This could only be true. This reality can only be true if this man shares the attributes of God, if he too is holy, eternal, unchanging, and so forth. Peter O'Brien, a commentator of Colossians, is helpful here when he says, Jesus is the one mediator between God and the world of mankind. The Colossian Christians need not fear those supernatural powers under whose control men were supposed to live, whether divine emanations, agencies, or the like. God and all his divine essence and power had taken up residence in Christ. And so thought is that, that Paul really here, he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the fullness of God dwells in Christ and so renders the temple obsolete, then every other Jewish rite also finds its telos, right, its goal or its fullness, its completeness in Jesus Christ. The Hebrews, Hebrew Roots movement has been taking Steam. This is a group that's encouraging Christians that to be true Christians, to be true followers of Christ, to really be God's people, they need to obey certain aspects of the Torah. This absolutely destroys that. Again, it appears that some Jews, mixed in with perhaps others, were telling these new Christians at the church in Colossae to join their fold and so observe these Jewish laws and so forth. And again, if they would do, if they would do that, then they would truly be God's people. They would be righteous. Uh, they would truly be spiritual. But this text indicates that that would be to go backwards when God's fullness dwells in Christ. Jesus makes all of those Jewish rites obsolete. Anyone who wants to worship the one true and living God needs to look no further than Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwells at him or as F.F. Bruce puts it, all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory are disclosed in Jesus. All the attributes and activities of God. If you know me well, you would know that I'm a minimalist. If I could have it my way, I would have a Ford Nugget and my backpack maybe some rock climbing ropes and some downhill skis and I would hit the road and that's all I would want in life. I would be content. I like to keep life simple and uncluttered. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is a minimalistic religion. It's an uncluttered religion. Christ. Christ is all. We don't need anything else. We don't need to read the church fathers we don't need to study the great philosophers of the day and age or even dead ones. We don't need to have a clue about world religions. We don't need to be up on all the social issues of the day. We only need to know Jesus Christ. If you were to read through Colossians in one sitting, which I would encourage everyone here to do this afternoon, that would be my challenge to you. It's only 1,936 words in the ESV. If you put it single-lined on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, it's only one page front and back. It doesn't take very long. But if you were to do that, if you were to read the book of Colossians in one sitting, what you would notice, what you would hear would be this. And I would encourage you to read it out loud because this is what you're going to hear. Christ, Christ, Christ. Christ on chapter 1, Christ in chapter 2, Christ in chapter 3, Christ in chapter 4. Over 25 times you're going to hear in the book of Colossians, Christ, if I counted right not counting Jesus and all the times that he's mentioned. And so obviously our goal in life is to please him. 
There's no need for us to please another, only Christ, the one in whom God's fullness dwells. We're not to be men pleasers, but Christ pleasers. Ed Welch writes this excellent book that I've enjoyed over the years entitled When People Are Big and God Is Small, but it could also be rightly entitled When People Are Big and Christ Is Small. We care too much about what what people think of us and not enough about what Christ, our head, thinks of us. He is preeminent. He is God. We only need to care about what he thinks of us, what pleases him. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man, caring more about what people think of us, traps us, causes us to go down wrong paths, destructive paths. Jesus is Lord of all of creation, but he's also the head, the Lord of our faith. We shouldn't care what people think of us. We shouldn't seek to please people. And again, as this relates to the church, how many churches refuse to follow Jesus Christ and to do the right things before him in his eyes because they fear some powerful person in the church? I've been in many churches where that's been the case. They fear upsetting the wrong crowd. Or they do things so that their communities will like them. They become seeker-sensitive. Or they become, in more modern terms and vernacular, woke. They are people-pleasers. They want the world to think that they are cool. They want the world to think that they're relevant. There's a whole new generation of Christians out there that the worst possible thing they could imagine would be for the world to tell them that they are irrelevant. or uncool. They fear man. They care more about what people think of them than Jesus Christ. That's really silly in light of the glory of Christ depicted in this text, isn't it? The pure and unpolluted worship of Jesus Christ by his people is the solution to all church problems, all the church's problems. We must lift high the name of Christ, as the Gettys sing. We can't allow, we can't afford, rather, we can't afford to allow other things to clutter our church. We can't afford that. Christ, 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 that needs to be our mantra. If we're looking for some slick slogan, that needs to be our slogan, Christ. Christ, Christ. Live to please Christ with your life because he is the one in whom God's fullness dwells. And then as if this were not enough to explode our hearts and our minds, right? If we could handle any more glory, Paul goes on. Not only is Christ all of this, but lastly and surely not leastly, we should also live to please Christ because he is the instrument of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hallelujah. Christ is the instrument of reconciliation. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Ever since the fall of mankind, going way back to Genesis 3, mankind's greatest need has been reconciliation with their creator God. 
And now through Christ, man's greatest, greatest need has been achieved. It's through Christ that mankind now enjoys a harmonious relationship with their creator God. It's through Christ that the hostilities between God and mankind have ended. How is that possible? How can they have this harmonious relationship now where there was formerly enmity? Well, Jesus did this on the cross, as the rest of the verse explains. By making peace, it says, through the blood of his cross. Christ's death, the shedding of his blood, signifies that. And also calls, attention, calls our, our attention to the fact that his death was a sacrifice. But Christ's death, the shedding of his blood, turned away God's wrath and made peace. The big word for that is propitiation, but that's what happened. And then through the gospel, Christ accomplished this reconciliation. Brought about this harmonious relationship once again with our creator God. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. It was a substitutionary death. Made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His death accomplished this. And notice how in this text we see that phrase once again, all things. It's kind of sprinkled throughout our passage. The all things refers to those things visible and invisible. Through Christ, that is through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God has reconciled to himself all things. Again, we're, we're too self-centered. Our, our thinking is too man-centered, too anthropocentric. Because there's way more going on here than our redemption. Romans 8.20 explains, For the creation, visible and invisible, all things, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children God. I mean, the primary recipient of this reconciliation and this piece is mankind, as we see in the rest of chapter 1. But it's not limited to mankind. Since Genesis 3, creation, visible and invisible, has suffered the consequences of sin and so is also in need of redemption and need of rescue and renewal. As G. Cole puts it, the scope of the reconciliation and peacemaking affected by Christ is breathtaking. All things are touched by Christ's sacrifice through his blood shed on the cross. And as Robert Lethem rightly notes with regard to Colossians 1.20, his death on the cross served not only to restore humanity to fellowship with God, but also to renew the entire universe. And so this reconciliation is what theologians call an already not yet reconciliation. The verbs being used here typically convey some past completed event, finished, done. Christ's sacrifice on the cross accomplished this reconciliation, this peace. The victory is Christ's, past tense. But it awaits a fuller realization. The beginning of the end has been set in motion. All things can therefore be reckoned as having been already reconciled to Christ. Think about that. That's why it is unrighteous for Christians to run around like Chicken Little, responding to current events, saying the sky is falling. The sky hasn't fallen. 
Christ has already been victorious. Peace has come, and peace is coming. Leon Morris sums up this peace when he says, peace means the defeat of evil. Peace means breaking down the barrier between man and God. Peace means the presence of God's rich and abundant blessing. Christ is our peace. And so we have this peace with God now, but evil still lingers. It is defeated, but awaits the consummation of that defeat. And this is a peace, some have said, forcibly brought about by a triumphant victor, which was always God's plan. This was always God's plan that Jesus would be the triumphant victor. It was always God's plan for Christ. Redemption isn't plan B. Well, Adam and Eve screwed it up. That was plan A. Now I got to work on a plan B. No, it, this was always the plan. Always the plan so that Jesus Christ would be our redeemer and be highly exalted and the head of this new humanity for all eternity. This was always the plan. Again, our reconciliation isn't the main event. Christ, though, as the agent, right, the one to bring about that reconciliation, is the main event. All things are in Christ, by Christ, and to Christ, both creation and new creation. Brothers and sisters, this worthy one is the one we proclaim. When people think about us, this is what we want them to think about, nothing else. Not that we're smart, not that we're hip, not that we're cool, not that we're kind, not that we're loving, but that we are Christ's, and we are those who proclaim him in word and deed. Every square inch of this planet belongs to Jesus Christ. People are fighting over the land, fighting over what belongs to who. What do we care? I don't care if it's a chop zone or Chaz zone. It's Jacob's zone. It's all Christ's zone. And as believers, we're to hold these things loosely. Take it. You want my three beat up minivans? Come get them. You can have them. Every single person that exists, whether they know it or not, exists for Christ. All things are in Christ, by Christ, and to Christ. This is the motivation for our evangelistic efforts. How can we keep silent? Yes, we should care for the souls of unbelievers. And so be motivated by compassion to proclaim the message of hope and reconciliation. But our love for people is not the main motivation behind our evangelistic efforts. Christ's preeminence is. And I think that that's important to point out because sometimes I think Christians are waiting for their love for their neighbor to be perfect before they share Christ. Brothers and sisters, that might not happen. But we don't have to wait around for us to be convinced of Christ's perfection, his preeminence. I'm not proclaiming myself. As Colossians 1.28 proclaims, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we might present everyone complete in Christ. Every believer should have two goals in mind when they meet a person. If that person is a Christian, their goal is to present that person even more complete in Christ, to work towards that end in their life. If that person is an unbeliever, our goal ought to be to win them to Christ. Our responsibility is simply and clearly proclaim the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have one message, 
for the world? Christ. 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 Our message isn't moralism. It's not some sort of code of conduct. Don't drink, don't dance, don't whatever, like the Jewish message here to the Colossian believers. Our message isn't seven steps to a better you or ten ways to be a great dad. Our message is a person. Christ, Christ, Christ. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan that if you sliced him, he would bleed biblene. Our aim in life ought to be that if you slice us, we bleed Christ. He is our peace, our reconciliation. All things are made right and whole and complete in him and him alone. And so obviously then we live to please this worthy one, Jesus Christ, with our lives. He's preeminent over creation and over the new creation. No one can rightly understand the world we live in or their purpose for being in this world apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, life is, is meaningless and it's angering and absolutely confusing unless Christ is properly located at the center of all things. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is our head. He is the founder of the new humanity. He is our king. He is the reason for the existence of all that we know, all that we can understand and perceive and beyond. He is the one we proclaim. We have no other philosophy. We need no other philosophy. We're not looking for any other philosophy. Jesus alone is where our hope lies. He is the answer to our problems. An intimate fellowship with him through faith in the gospel is our prize, is our treasure, period. Sure, there are many peripheral benefits in Christ that we enjoy and experience, but none are greater than his person. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is enough. And Christians are those who want Christ for Christ. Come what may. Not wanting Christ for what Christ will bring them. And not even wanting Christ for what Christ might be able to do for society. There are those who want Christ for Christ. And that is enough for them. Come what may. So brothers and sisters, the fix is already in. The world has already been fixed. It's not up to you and to me to fix the world. We are free then. You are free then to preach Christ, to counsel Christ, to teach Christ, to live Christ, and to enjoy Christ. John 17, 3 says that is eternal life. Enjoying his person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to move from this message. Help this message to take deep root 
in our hearts. Help us to encourage each other to cling to this message. Come what may. For your glory, Christ's worthy exaltation, and for our extreme joy. Amen.